Welcome to another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdery. On this episode, I sat down to talk with Brett Stevens, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, author, and someone I'm proud to call my mentor. As you'll soon hear, it first starts out with us talking about the writing process and how both of us approach this, and also great tips and advice for writers out there everywhere. So be sure to have a listen. This was one of my favorite interviews to record. And as I said, Brett Stevens is my mentor. So it's really cool to sit down and sort of pick his brain and understand a little bit more about how he got to where he is today. I hope you enjoy. So you, you even you as someone who's written hundreds of, if not thousands of columns, you still find it difficult the, to capture the pacing or to perfect the pacing of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think writing becomes harder the better you do it. Really? Yeah. Uh, the, my, one so of my it rules... in the opposite way that you would think. No, you know what it works like? It works like one of those video games where as soon as you defeat one series of monsters, it's like Pac-Man. Sorry, I'm dating myself here. But once you like, you eat up all the little whatever... Ghosts. Ghosts yeah. uh, in the first level of Pac-Man, you're just taken to a more and more difficult level. And one of my rules of writing is if you think writing is easy, you're doing it wrong. Okay. I've encountered people who will say to me, oh, yeah, I just uh, uh, knocked out a column in 45 minutes. And I don't say anything, but the thought that runs through my mind is can't be a particularly good column. (laughs) Yeah. Because there are so many um, almost invisible choices that need to be made that really determine the difference between uh, an artful and thoughtful and um, compelling column and one that is just a matter of uh, typing. Are there certain things that do get easier the more you write? Well, you you kind of develop tricks in your mind. Um, You get a sense of the architecture of writing. And by architecture, I mean that... uh, Almost literally, one of the things I do with my columns is I count the number of paragraphs. Okay. Uh, because I'm aware that the experience of reading places not just a demand on the mind of the reader, it places a demand on the eye of the reader. Yeah. So if you have a giant paragraph yeah, stuffed with big words, yeah. it's daunting. And the easiest decision any reader can make is to stop reading. Right. So how do you develop a snappy first paragraph that efficiently communicates what this is about, what the tone of what the what the tone of the article is and where it's likely to lead so that you hook your reader and start forgive the metaphor like a fish or similarly yeah. uh reeling him in. Right. How do you efficiently communicate information in short paragraph bursts that move that reader along but that nonetheless succeed in your task of offering an informed a clever a thoughtful argument and those are those are decisions that become more and more difficult the more you do them is there ever a real reason to have a massive paragraph yeah sometimes look it, it always depends on um uh first of all it depends on the the kind of article you are sure. Uh, writing and it is more common in academic writing to have larger paragraphs then again I tend to find academic writing really turgid and tedious Uh, 
there are moments when a big paragraph is really what is called for, mm-hmm. um, when you don't want to break it down. I'm annoyed when uh, a, some newspapers around the country that syndicate my column will take my column, but they'll break up my paragraphs, which are oh. usually pretty short into sort of one-sentence paragraphs. And I feel like the reader loses something in terms of the quality of flow. Yeah. So that matters too. There are all these these intangible elements that go in 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 good writing that are almost unnoticeable. I think to uh, maybe younger, less experienced writers. Um, but I I pay a lot of attention to them. I mean, I've, I think I pay as much attention to the craft of writing as to the argument that I'm making. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like you're saying that what really needs to be captured is balance, uh, and that takes time and a certain level of skill to develop, uh, and mm. a lot of perhaps um, uh, mistakes being made. <laughs> right. Well, balance is a, is a really good word for it because mm. it's it's um, not just architectural, as I said, but there's a sense that you don't want to tip over. Uh, one way of tipping over is to get so wrapped up in a side point mm. that you um, miss the broad direction of what you're trying to achieve. And there are always interesting side points to be made. Right. Every now and then I will allow myself one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in my last column, uh, there was this lovely quote from Eric Hoffer, the philosopher who wrote The True Believer. Mm-hmm. And if I'm being honest with myself, it was probably unnecessary for the column, but I liked it so much and I thought it provided some value that I was willing to just devote a little bit of space. But I had to be careful to snap back and snap the reader back to the thrust of the argument that I was trying to make. Sure. Speaking of Eric Hoffer, um, there's a show right now on Netflix called Messiah. Have you heard of it or seen it? Or I, I have do not. Do you watch TV, Brett? <laughs> do you have time uh, these days? I, I'm, I'm, you know, this is a really like lame thing to say, but I really don't watch TV. That's fair. It's okay. We all have our flaws. I hate people who are like, oh, I don't even own a television. I, just for the record, I do own a television, yeah. but... I don't even know how to use it, and I have to ask one of my kids like to show me how the remotes work, which, like, I'm 46. I'm way too young to it's, be such a fuddy-duddy. It's so funny. I was actually just watching Fran Lebowitz uh, on uh, one of the Tonight Shows yesterday, and she was talking about how she doesn't own a TV out of principle, and she has, like, never owned a TV since, like, she was 17 or something like well, that. Well, you know, look, <laughs> honestly, you don't end up missing that much, sure. and... When people have asked me, you know, gosh, you you really succeeded at a young age professionally. How, how did that work? And I've my answer. I know this is a bit glib. I mean, part of the answer, obviously, is a great deal of luck right. and you know things that worked my way, either on account of the my my circumstances of my birth or uh, you know just plain old luck. But in terms of the part that I feel like I own, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know. The Sopranos, never seen it. <laughs> Breaking Bad, no idea. Yeah, I tried to watch Game of Thrones. I watched two seasons of it because okay. I was sick. Yeah, right. And so I was like, all right, well, I've, you know, laid up with the flu. I'll, I'll watch this <laughs> stuff. Miss the next whatever six or seven seasons. Sure. So there are hours and hours, hundreds of hours of life that other people have given over to watching this or that series that. I spent reading, right. you know, and, and I think the thing about reading is the reason it, it's so important is that it communicates 
a large quantity of information in a very compact form, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, if I were to, if you were to read a book about Chernobyl, the level of detail yeah. you would get is just it's infinitely more dense yeah. than what you'd get. I did watch, by the way, the the the, the series on Chernobyl, and okay. I thought it was very well acted. And I don't want to, I don't want to. De- diminish the artistry of sure. of what goes into a show or, or a series like that because I really thought it was it was extremely well done. I wrote a column about it. Actually, that's the reason I watched it, to write okay. a column about it. Um, but it doesn't contain the density of information that you really need to understand exactly what happened at Chernobyl. Sure. Um, and it takes too many dramatic liberties. Uh, whereas, you know, why is reading so valuable for education? Because it really communicates a lot and allows you to take in a lot in an amazingly short span of time. You know, I'm curious, I'm just thinking about this on a, a broader scale. I wonder if there is a correlation between the amount of sort of um, mediums that a person is engaging with, whether it's TV, whether it's social media, um, that causes a person to become atomized and incapable of producing the sort of balanced voice we talked about earlier in writing or frankly in any other forms of art that they would produce. Look, I think there's no question that distraction is the enemy of concentration mm-hmm. definitionally. Yeah. And distraction in the digital age is almost uh, ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Um and what requ- what is required for the kind of writing that I do, never mind what novelists do, mm-hmm. is is to rid yourself of all that. So I really get the whole cabin in the woods yeah. um, uh, impulse. On the other hand, um, <laughs> someone once said, I forgot who, who who made this observation, but someone once made the point that some of our most creative moments come in states of medium to low consciousness, which is mm-hmm. not to say when we're sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, it is to say when we're in the shower, mm-hmm. proverbially when we're jogging, uh, you'll, you'll suddenly, an idea will flash through your head when you're kind of zoned out, but not totally zoned out. And for that, uh, you, you just can't be staring at the screen thinking what comes next, what comes right, next. Right, right. And so I find in my writing that it's sort of like, I mean, if I were to offer you an image of it, imagine a faucet that isn't quite working well. So you, you turn it on and at first it kind of sputters some brown water and you're like, all right, that's gross, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, then, and then it stops and then there's a small trickle of clear water uh, and then maybe another sputtering of brown water and then you get bits and traps and eventually you fill your cup with clear water. That's kind of like the way my brain seems to work. Uh, um, I've known writers who are able to sit down uh, and just produce and produce remarkably clean copy. Uh, And that's amazing and I envy it. But that's, I don't think that's the way most of us work. I think most of us need a little bit of the aspect of distraction, which sometimes means just clicking on, you know, random cat videos or whatever, and suddenly you're like, oh, that's the point I need to make. You need to wait for the insight rather than produce the insight, if you if you see what I mean. So just like good writing requires balance, it also requires space, 
right? And not f- being completely concentrated with 100% focus on the project itself, but allowing things, other things within reason to take up space so that a, a, a picture sort of organically uh, starts to form. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, it's really, really well um, observed. And I think in writing and in life in general, it's often the thing that's on the side that actually proves to be the main event. Um, okay. And so, and you need space for that, yeah. which is to say that in, in many ways, mental space, physical space, uh, emotional space, and so on, um, which is where you, you start... I mean, there will be times when I'll start a column and I'll be like, hang on, I've just had a, a, a connected thought which doesn't quite fall into the stream of this argument. But that connected thought is really the interesting idea. And then you sometimes will have to just drop whatever it is that you've written and pursue that or put a new lead on your piece because that that random thought is really what is original or interesting or arresting in one way or another that happens all the time i mean it just i can't tell you how many columns begin with me thinking oh i'm definitely going to write about i don't know you know whatever iowa and then i end up somewhere else not just not just geographically but um but uh intellectually and that those are sometimes are the best columns I remember when uh, we worked together at the Wall Street Journal and we would have, I don't know if you remember this, but we would have these 20-minute conversations at the end of every week, it seemed, uh, that were so poignant to me that I wish I had recorded those conversations because you would say such things that just the way they landed were so majestic. And I'm just, I was just like, in the beginning, I was like, who is this guy? Like, where is he pulling this from? and so I'm wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about your <laughs> your education, um, in, in part because I saw that there was a joke that was made uh, by someone uh, at an event you were speaking at uh, who said that you were educated at U of Chicago and somewhere else, and you were like, no, just U of Chicago. <laughs> so if you could talk a little bit about Yeah, well, that's that really experience. sweet of you. You know, I, I remember us shooting the breeze. I, I yeah. didn't realize my points were landing uh, with majestically i'm really i'm I'm blushing uh you can't see a blush on a on a podcast but i really am um look university of chicago taught me that there are larger questions than the ones that we spend our lives dealing with and the that beautiful image of plato's cave Mm. that what we are actually looking at um aren't the real things they aren't even the fake things. They're the shadow of fake things. Yeah. Um, shadows on a, being projected on a wall is, is, I mean, obviously it's one of the more cliched images of philosophy, but there's a reason, and it's, and it's true. And Chicago really taught me to ask a set of very fundamental questions that were very simple questions. You know, they were not, they were brilliant not because they were complex, they were brilliant because they were basic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that always struck me as a much more promising way of thinking about the world. The other thing, to be honest with you, is uh, it comes from my mom and dad beyond the educational thing, the piece. Um, my parents were very good about giving me the sense that absolutely everyone uh, is 
potentially interesting. Mm-hmm. And people are, uh, you know, they are doing their best in life. Mm-hmm. And life is filled with these tough questions. The best column I've written in the last month had to do with the death of uh, Neil Peart, who was the drummer for the Canadian band Rush. Liking Rush is like one of those embarrassing tastes that people don't admit to, except one of the funny things about the digital age is suddenly when you started to notice that a Rush video would have like 10 million views, you're like, oh, a lot of people (laughs) feel just the same way. But when I was in high school and there was no YouTube, I was almost embarrassed by by it. But the lyrics, Peart was this master ma- masterly drummer, uh, kind of known in drumming circles as like one of the great drummers. He's also the lyricist. And I used to really pay attention to the lyrics. And they were all about um, the struggle of becoming mm. and the, um, the anxiety, but also the amazement of being. Mm. And my parents had kind of clued me into that. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to that music because it it got at this. So, I mean, you were kind of my mentee, yeah. right? Uh, um, like that's the way I've tried to always approach, especially younger people. Like I've been there. I mean, I just when we were chatting the other day, you mentioned this commencement speech I gave yeah. about you know four years ago, and it was all about how your early twenties suck. Yeah, um, how yeah. hard that is. Uh, and I think it's important to just be on the level about that sort of thing. I don't know if I answered your question, but... Well, it's funny you say that because I actually wanted to ask you about some specific uh, quotes from that talk uh, and and ask you to, like, opine a bit further, um, given that that talk was in 2017 and now we're three years later. 16. Oh, 2016, sorry. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was 16. Niagara? Niagara University. Okay. Catholic school up in uh, upstate New York. Well, someone needs to change the YouTube description. Um, But (laughs) one of the things you said uh, that students need to understand or obtain, rather, is a humble acceptance that our understanding of the truth will almost always be something less than complete. And what I wanted to ask you um, is how can we, how do you think we can teach people to deal with this feeling of incompleteness? Isn't that a huge project, the vastness of which we take for granted? Yeah, because the comfortable place to be is in a place of certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what's required for that humble acceptance is... Um, is a kind of inner tension um, that is very hard to master. Uh, and that is, you know, there's a rabbinical saying, I forgot which great rabbi said this, um, that some rabbi carried around in his pockets um, two slips of paper, one that said, I am but dust and ashes, and the other that said, you know, I am created in, in my Lord's uh, image mm-hmm. and he he has made the world for me or something mm-hmm. like that. I think I got that wrong and someone who <laughs> listens to this podcast will correct me. Um, but, and and so this rabbi carried around both messages in, in, in either pocket. And I think that is a wonderful way of going about the world, which is to say to have in one pocket that sense of self-assurance, mm-hmm. God made the world for me, mm-hmm. Right. And I'm in. I I I my I am in, in 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 his image, and that's empowering, and that should give you confidence, um, and 
on the other hand, the line I'm but dust and ashes is a reminder that like, who are you? You right. have to maintain like some deep skepticism about this entire enterprise. And the th- thoughtful people I know are ones who live between those two tensions and it can't be resolved. It's like a rubber band being pulled but not broken. Yeah. Um, uh, do you really, th- do you truly believe it can never be resolved? Because I think of I think of poets like Maya Angelou who like seem to walk as though like she seemed to exist on the earth in such a way that uh, made it seem like there was no inner te- like the tension was just resolved within her. Just as an example. No, I totally I just Maya Angelou was the commencement speaker at my sister's Mount Holyoke. Okay. Uh, commencement in 1987. She gave an incredible address. I mean, I was a kid and it yeah. was just unforgettable. But I would put money on the idea that Maya Angelou always existed in with that inner strain. No, I don't think um, she, she definitely didn't always. But I think she, maybe, I mean, there's no No, way I mean, look, people are very good at projecting. And sure. we all know that we are not... I'm not the person who gets up on stage in front of 500 people and confidently gives a speech. I am partly that person. Right, right, right. Right? But I'm also the guy who then goes back to his hotel room and kind of slinks into a depression Mm -hmm. um, and says, you know, I could have said that better or do I really mean that? uh, Or what am I doing giving these stupid speeches? I should be writing a great book. Like... (laughs) <laughs> I am I am consumed with it's not self-loathing. I don't sure. I like myself. Yeah. But I am consumed with this um uh highly s- uh, self-lacerating or at least self-critical um perspective. Mm-hmm. Um I am keenly conscien- conscious of the fact that there are smarter people sure. and more deserving people that uh, uh that I owe much of what's good in my life to just, you know, the good a good set of cards, so to speak. Um, and if I if I look if you if you are too self critical a person, it will cripple you. Yeah. If you are too confident a person, it will cripple you too. Yeah. Differently, mm-hmm. it will make you insufferable. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who are interesting are are balancing those two things. Um. Uh, in a way that ultimately becomes, you know, deeply who they are. I mean, I feel this way about you. I mean, you you yeah. walk through. I I know you well enough mm-hmm. to know that there is this profoundly introspective human being who, uh, you know, is is constantly questioning herself. Yeah, but, very exhausting. But the other side of you is like. <laughs> You know, I'm Beyonce's like natural heiress, and you know that should just be obvious to everyone. Yeah, that's true. That it's, it's so funny you say that. I actually tweeted something last night, like defending the Carters <laughs> for, from something that happened publicly. But yes, I that's true. I do, I do. Like, I mean, you carry yourself as a really confident person, and you kind of have to. Get, I mean, I've now known you for years. Like, yeah. I know there's this whole other side of you. Yeah that is nowhere near that confident that but what's really appealing about you as a person is that you're honest about it yeah and i think that's what you end up 
you really have to do. I mean, I think people who know me from a distance think, oh, he's so arrogant. I think people who know me up close know I'm, I'm pretty honest about myself and yeah. much more humble than maybe I let on. Definitely. It's interesting. So the, the saying that you mentioned by the rabbi reminded me of this Turkish proverb that I randomly ran across one day when I was like Googling famous sayings. Um, and the Turkish proverb says, uh, be humble for you are made of earth, be noble for you are made of stars. And every time I think of that uh, quote, I actually think of the movie The Lion King, which is, in, <laughs> which is in my top five favorite films of all time, and which is something I teach. But the original version, not the new one. Oh, no, right? I refuse to watch the new version. That's blasphemy. Um, although <laughs> the album that Beyonce commissioned was amazing, just for the record. Um, so, so I listened to the album on repeat, but I refuse to watch the new version. Um, but anyway, the... I, I teach the Lion King as an embodiment of that saying and also of the saying. I mean, it's nice to know that it, it cuts across cultures, right? Yeah. I mean, that's because I think it's a it's a fundamental human insight, whether you're Jewish or Muslim or Christian or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and by the way, you know, I'm a huge fan of not only the Lion King, but a lot of the animated films. Yeah. I was going to ask you, actually, what, what do you think right now, because it can always change, is your favorite Disney movie? Uh, Tangled. Yes, you told me about that one. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Tangled. Yeah. I just think it's so inventive. And, you know, look, I've had, I have three kids. And so, uh, um, I mean, my youngest is just getting out of the Disney movie stage. You know, she's, <laughs> she's progressing to, yeah. um, she's infatuated with this new show about someone who mistakenly goes to heaven. I, I've only, like, caught a oh. glimpse of it. Is it? The Good Place? The Good Place. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, place, I, she yeah. watches it from time to time. I'm like, what's this about? But I've, <laughs> I've never actually watched it. But so I, I did go, I mean, the last time I sat in a theater I was to see Frozen 2, which I really okay. did not like. Yeah. I thought well, it was. Frozen 1 was not, uh, in my opinion, out of all the pantheon of It was Disney not movies, nowhere so, close to the yeah. best. No, not, yeah. not at all. I thought it was really, I, I feel the same. I think Inside Out was brilliant. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are whole. I mean, obviously the uh, what the Incredibles, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, but be, they, because they have to work on multiple levels, it really forces the creators to be that much more clever mm -hmm. to tell jokes that parents will get right. and children will laugh and at. Go over the children's right, <laughs> and but also, and this is really important to always maintain a certain kind of sweetness. Yes. That there is that yes. side that is ultimately redemptive, yes, 100%. and there's drama, but but life ends up okay in those yeah. movies, and that's really important. You know, I think it's a great counterweight to the cynicism of our time. Yes. So I watch those, and you know, the funny thing is, this is a weird thing that happens as you get older. You know, when I was in my twenties, I was really into film noir, like okay. you know, dark things, <laughs> um, like Nosferatu. <laughs> no, I mean, like like a film I was really taken taken in by in the late 90s or so was um, a film called Amores Perros, which okay. takes place in Mexico City. I mean, it is an unrelentingly dark film. Okay. Um, actually, I know someone who went to go see it with his wife and ended up divorced. It's so dark. Like, as a result of seeing the movie? It kind of as a result of seeing the movie. Like, it really wow. just... Just in, uh, and I, at the time, and it is a brilliant film, yeah. right? Iñárritu did it. He did Babel. He's done. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. He yeah. did that film with um, Leo DiCaprio living as a you know, 
with the bear and all that stuff. Oh, Rev- uh, Revenant. The Revenant. Yeah. Anyway, he, his specialty is dark films. <laughs> As I got older, I was like, I can't take dark films. I need like, you know, like. sense and sensibility, that kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of stuff. <laughs> and then yeah. I've, I've since then progressed to like, no, I just want to go see a Disney film. Yeah. In part because his life becomes harder, you're your desire for entertainment is you want happiness. Right. Right. The, I also think you need to be reminded of the redemptive piece because of the cynical climate that we live in. I mean, I am actually so afraid of losing touch with the redemptive piece or with the redemptive part of life because of all the voices from the media that are constantly, um, presenting a viewpoint that is the opposite of redemptive. This goes back to the University of Chicago. I mean, what were the questions we were asking? What is what is truth, really? What is beauty, really? What is justice? Um, and these were questions that it were not only profound, but they were in some sense affirmative mm-hmm. because they took as... I mean, not necessarily, but they really took as their basis the idea that there is this thing called truth. Yeah and justice, and beauty, and so on, these aspirational concepts towards which all human beings living in any culture, they have some sense that these things are out there. Sure. You asked me this question about you know, the truth and always understanding that you can't, you can't grasp it. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between saying you can't fully grasp the truth and saying it's not there at all. Right. And I really have a kind of a teleological view of many things, which is that the, the, the truth about truth, if you will, is that all of us have it almost innately wired into our uh, nervous system or our DNA or whatever, that it's out there. That, and we know very often, not only, we know not only that we can distinguish truth from lies, and that, but that it's, it's central that we should do so. Mm-hmm. And it's central that even if we don't grasp the entire truth or if we have different opinions about it, that the attempt to grasp the truth has to be kind of at the center of all human endeavor, whether it's scientific or moral or political and so on. And the cynicism comes by saying these concepts don't exist. I mean, right. why... Why do I feel so negative about Donald Trump, right? Because I think that at bottom, his presidency um, exemplifies a certain kind of cynicism. Yes. Um, And, you know, I say this as a guy who's pretty conservative and, you know, who's happy Neil Gorsuch is on the court, right? I am, I'm that of that mind. I like my taxes being lower. I think less regulation is better. A lot of things that you know, liberal or progressive um, uh, listeners of this podcast will will disagree with, and that's fine. I think those are totally reasonable disagreements. But where I draw the line with Trump is that I feel that to him, it's all a game. It's all a show. That that the fundamental uh, claim of his presidency is, yeah, I'm a bullshit artist, but all of you are bullshitters too. Right. And anyone who's earnest, anyone who's sincere, is a sucker. And I'm going to step on that sucker. And I hate that. Um, I think it's, I mean, I don't think Trump's presidency is going to end the world. I don't think a second term would end the world. But eventually, if you let this go long enough, that is the end. Um, Because you have, you've kind of given up on the idea that there are 
there are some kind of verities, some maybe just comforting myths, but also some deep fundamental truths that we have to honor if we're going to sustain our our form of life and yeah. if we're going to be able to sustain better more humane relations between people. People talk about this, the, the culture, you know, we were talking about earlier, cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And yeah, cancel culture is to a large extent a creature of the left. I don't think it's a creature of left or right. Okay. I think it's a creature of cynicism, which is a purely bipartisan phenomenon. Sure. Um, and what has happened in the last uh, three years, four years, is that that culture of cynicism has just uh, metastasized mm-hmm. like a cancer. And it's infecting everyone. And it's turning everyone into a, a lesser version of who they ought to be. Yeah, I think we're losing our sense of, of being able to detect wonder in one another. It's such a good word. Yeah. That is, you just put your finger on the most important word. That sense of wonder and that conviction that you will find a spark of wonder in every human being. Um, wonder as in wondrousness, wonder as in curiosity, Mm -hmm. um, wonder as in um, not just mystery, but the possibility of transcendence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've always tried to approach other people and think there's got to be some aspect of wonder there. Have I succeeded in this respect? (laughs) Definitely not. Am I given to fits of... Uh, unpleasantness, moodiness, uh, yes. Am I thin-skinned? Yes. Am I vindictive? Capable of that too. Yes. But somewhere deep down, I'm trying to hold on to the idea that I shouldn't be this way and that I should try to approach people in the most generous spirit possible. And I think you're right that if we do lose that ability, we will lose ourselves because we will no longer be able to detect the fact that what is on what is happening on the outside is in some ways a facade i mean i i will always harp on disney because it's my bible kind of um but if you think about aladdin for example and and <laughs> this is what this is what I, I just want i just want people <laughs> listening to this podcast to know that I, I i worked with i worked with chloe for a year she's really a, a not only a deep but an extremely well-read person it's not just aladdin and I mean, listen, lion I king can talk about anna karenina but let's be honest less people have read that so it's 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 less people have read that than have seen aladdin so I'm going broad. I'm here. not sure. Actually, I'm not sure. Anna Karenina has been around for over a century, so I don't know. Maybe I don't know. There's right. no way to know. But but fewer fewer living people. <laughs> sure, okay. sure. Fewer living people. So the Disney does this thing where they put the model of their or the moral of their stories in the first thirty seconds of the movie, um, and so the the moral of the story of Aladdin is. Um, do not be fooled by its commonplace appearance. Like most things, it is not what is on the outside, but what is on the inside that counts, right? So that's sort of said in the first minute or so of the of the film, and that's all, that's what Aladdin is about. Um, and I really sense that in this atmosphere of cynicism and uh, hyper identitarian politics, or a political space where hyper focus on identity in a very superficial and outside, looking from the outside in as opposed to looking on the inside, um, is 
is causing us to be in danger of like losing our souls like i think it's like a very existential problem that very few people are speaking to or expressing about like this is this is not simply a political conversation this is a moral conversation it's a conversation about the battle for the heart and soul of america and for the west oh i mean <laughs> yeah 100% i mean th- this is what bugs me about identity politics it says the least interesting thing about me is the most important thing about me right. <laughs> like i was born a white guy right so you know like I mean, I get that you can attribute, you can infer yeah. aspects about me, but you don't know a lot about me yeah. by saying that any more than I know, like, you know, Chloe Valdery is a, is a, is a black woman. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Right. Congratulations. Yeah. You didn't earn that. Right. You didn't, you didn't do that. You just happened to be born into the world and kind of, you know, took a look at your arm and like, oh, you know, this is the color of my skin. Yeah. And, 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 and it goes with, with anyone. And, and identity politics makes that primary and i think that is incredibly reductive mm-hmm. um and also incredibly dangerous because once you start playing that game uh bad people can play it too right i mean look let me get back to trump for a second what has trump done that is so insidious is that he has taken the political tropes of the ideological left and put them to the purposes of the right mm-hmm. so you know, for years, the left said, I mean, at least on college campuses, you know, the truth is totally relative. The truth is just a function of the people in power. You know, truth has no independence next except for what, what the powerful say, right? That, right? that was the argument. And Trump was like, great, well, I have power, so truth is what I say it is, right? right? Whether in my real estate dealings or as president. What else did the left say? The Constitution is a sham document written by hypocritical white guys Um uh, who didn't mean a word of what they said goes same for the Declaration of Independence uh, and the Constitution ought to be a living document so it should mean whatever we say it means now, right? Trump's like, sure, <laughs> sounds good to me, yeah. right? Because I don't feel like uh, obedience to the Constitution is in my interest either. And the third thing he did, and most insidious, is to say, well, if you can have identity politics for people of color, why can't you have identity politics for white people? Mm-hmm. And that's now I think people are coming to grips with what a tremendously insidious and uh, dangerous concept that is. Um, the problem with identity politics isn't white identity, it's identity. It's yeah. the idea that we should be reduced to this, you know, these these biological facts and yeah. that they not only define us, but they... They, they define what we are supposed to say. I mean, Ayanna yeah. Presley, I think that was her. She was a member of the squad, uh, one of those four eh, cars. She sort of like goes in and out. But yeah. Well, but she had this line last summer, mm-hmm. right, that said, we don't need um, black voice. I've, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. it was basically like the only black voices we need are voices expressing, you know, black thoughts as she saw right, them right, or brown, right. you know. or And you're like, whoa. Yeah. Uh, and and you determined this like it was such a crazily illiberal uh, thought. Now we're having this huge debate over this book, which I haven't read, American Dirt. Oh right, yeah, I've heard about this by an American woman. I guess she has some Puerto Rican ancestry, but um, 
who's written about Mexican Americans making the journey, uh, escaping narco's and making the journey to uh, to the United States, and people have thrown a fit because she's not she's not Mexican American, even though she's writing with an abundance from what I can tell from the reviews, a, a, an abundance of of research and compassion for yeah. for her subjects. Well, if you really object to that idea, then the logical outcome of your objection is to build a wall oh that's interesting right <laughs> build the wall yeah because what is a mexican-american other than a form of cultural appropriation what is a what is a jewish american other than a form of cultural appropriation we're all cultural appropriators sure i am constantly appropriating your culture and vice versa yeah and that's phenomenal like why would anyone not want to do that why would i not want to feel like I'm going to appropriate this piece of your culture and then mix it with something else to, and blend it to produce something new. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is rock and roll other than a kind of an outgrowth of kind of, you know, Southern blues yeah. and English pop that kind of comes together in this magical way and produces something culturally interesting? Yeah. Um, so this is a calm I'm thinking about writing, but... You know, the, the, this this frenzy about cultural appropriation leads ultimately to the conclusion that, to Richard Spencer's conclusion, yeah, that there should be white culture and it should be inviolable. And I think that's horrible. It's interesting. I think that a lot of uh, people who opine on this issue in recent times have confused um, cultural appropriation with material appropriation in which you would have in, in the past, you know, people profiting off of the contributions of uh, uh, minorities without paying those people the due that they would have financially um, for their for their contributions, and I think that people are sort of conflating that with what you're describing, which is more about this idea of the melting pot, right? Um, from a from a broader perspective. Um, I wanted to say something about... But, you know, just just like... I mean, I get the... It's one thing if, you know, Vanilla Ice rips off a bass line yeah, from yeah. Queen or something like that, yeah. or or you, you do that across, uh, 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 across cultures. But it just seems to me to be completely um, antithetical to the American idea mm-hmm. that we should not be... Um, ripping each other off all the time. Sure. Um, I mean, in, not in a financial sense, right. but in 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 a, in a cultural sense. Yeah. It's what makes the U.S. exciting and distinctive. Yeah. Um, and, and and then, by the way, then, then you end up asking yourself, well, you know, which way does it go? Right. 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 So if if um, some some white person has uh, has developed this kind of I don't know, whatever it is, artistic, um, you, you know, if, if a black painter looks at a Gauguin yeah. and derives inspiration from right. that, right. Wh- what does if, he have to do? I right. mean, if, he should paint, you know? Right, if Beyonce and Jay-Z in their music video, Ape Shit, or I think it was in that music video, and perhaps it was in another, um, and this is what I love about them, not to harp on the Carters, but yes, I want to be friends with them at some point, so I have to, you know, do that, but... What I love about them is they 
don't make the argument that other people think they're making in their music politically. Some people think that they're sort of protesting the West. But if you see the music video, Ape Shit, they're in France. And they're basically just celebrating the fact that they're very successful and they, yeah. they are, you know, paragons of culture. And what they're doing in that piece is they're actually claiming Europe. They're not rejecting Europe. They're saying we are part of the European experience. We have contributed to the European experience. And that's very different from rejection, rejecting Europe or rejecting the West, broadly speaking. Yeah, 100%. It's Josephine Baker. I mean, yeah. Josephine Baker was, you know, had to make it in Europe because of so much racism in the United States. She claimed Europe. Europe claimed her. Right. Right. What's not to like? Yeah. It, it's a fantastic. It's a fantastic story, and I just am, I'm a deep believer in the concept that when you blend, yeah, you create, and and when you separate, you you sterilize. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that works. I'm not think about that line. Which but. is, yeah, I mean, ironic for a whole host of reasons, but yeah. um, to use that vocabulary. But um, I wanted to ask you. You know, we spoke about we spoke earlier about sort of like um, the education that you received at U of Chicago and and how you were enamored with the simplicity of the questions. What books would you suggest that? Americans in general, but young people in particular, read who don't have the necessarily the opportunity to go to U Chicago, but who want to have that a similar experience. You know, so every time you go into a bookstore, I don't know how many people go into bookstores these days because so many of them have just vanished in the face of Amazon. <laughs> By the way, one of the great cultural tragedies yeah. of our time, the idea that you can't go into a bookstore and let your eye wander around and find something interesting. Yeah. Um, that they're instead you're depending on an algorithm to find something interesting for you. Um, but at least when I go into bookstores, there's that shelf of serious-looking Penguin classics mm -hmm. that looks so forbidding. Uh, but they're treasures, and they're not difficult treasures. I mean, look, I'm a great believer that great that I'm a big believer that great literature should above all serve the function of pleasure, okay. right? The, and by pleasure, I mean uh, you are staying up half the night because you yeah. have to read the next chapter yeah. because it's so exciting. And I remember that sensation as a boy reading Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnapped, and you just needed to know what, what came next. And later on, um, uh, when I became you know, a young man reading Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. uh, Jane Austen novels are fantastic, yeah. right? They're filled with tension and drama and heroes and heroines and, 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 and bad guys. And you really learn about what it is to be, to play the game of love. Um, at other points in my life when I was struggling with things um, in terms of, you know, setbacks and doubts, Reading Somerset Maugham's uh, of Human Bondage, mm -hmm. I mean, made a huge impact yeah, on me. I read me. that one. You told me to read that one. Uh, Joseph Conrad, some of Conrad's mm. books. Uh, I know he's usually seen as this colonialist writer. He's a great, great writer. And uh, Lord Jim, as a study in, in, you know, um, the sense of honor, fallen honor, and the struggle for redemption, and the inner psychic struggle that people go through when they feel they've behaved dishonorably, 
Like that that book is 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 a raft on which I sail the world emotionally speaking. You know, it is it is balsa wood that's keeping me from drowning. I mean that and 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 many others. Um so you know, my advice is really just to read a little bit ambitiously and not be intimidated by what seems like, you know, heavy tone from 19th century. Right. Um, remember, this was the television of their day. Right. Right. So the books were always written to, you know, with, with a primary view of, of entertainment. They're not dull books of moral instruction. Right. Right. Or, or complex works of literature using language in a Joycean way that is more requires more of a sense of scholarship than a sense of just literary taste. Mm-hmm. Um, I, re- I love Thomas Mann. Uh, Budenbrooks was a big book for me. Um, uh, so uh, you mentioned Anna Karenina. I mean, yeah. I, that was I, the first big book that I read when I moved to New York, as per your advice. And my only regret is that I, I didn't uh, mark it up <laughs> with notes. Yeah, I mean, and as you grow older, the story of Kitty and Levin and the marriage, like, it assumes a larger importance. You see it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to, I mean, th- there are so many ways you can go. And by the way, it's not just Western literature. There are yeah. huge fields if, you're, if you sort of want to sort of step away from Western literature. There's so much that's non-Western. Mm-hmm that is is magnificent i mean uh, uh, when i was 17 i thrilled to reading gabriel garcia marquez and because i'm a spanish speaker i would read it in spanish uh and uh you know reading love in the time of cholera or 100 years of solitude and so on um so there's a lot of good stuff uh but that reading begins when you turn off the tv and when you discipline yourself to at least read the first 10 pages, which are often the most difficult ones, as you yes. work your way into the sense of story. I'm thinking about War and Peace right now, which is just, haven't gotten through those 10 pages. <laughs> well, half of it's in French at the beginning. So, <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But it's difficult, but I'll try to keep trucking through. Um, well, Brett, you've been such a wonderful guest. I know that we wanted to do this for a very long time. I'm happy you found the time to come over and be on the podcast. I just want to thank you for joining us. Listen, anytime. I mean, you know, you you blew me out of the water when we first met. It's why um, I hired you for the Bartley Fellowship and why I wanted to extend that for, for a year. And I'm so excited about what you're doing. Um, and... Uh, you're going to rule the world one day and I just want to be, um, you know, a minion <laughs> somewhere. Uh, but, um, I'm, I'm really, I'm proud of what you've accomplished and I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. The quote of the day comes from Alan Bloom who was both a philosopher, a classicist, and a professor. He said once that there is no real teacher who in practice does not believe in the existence of the soul or in a magic that acts on it through speech. That makes for another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I hope you enjoyed. As always, please remember to share with your friends and family on social media and beyond. I'm your host, Chloe Valdry. Have a good week.